When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're talking to extraordinary people who've overcome adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is a best-selling author who has written more than 130 books and whose stories have been turned into plays and films watched by everyone from the late Queen to schoolchildren. His books include War Horse, Kensuke's Kingdom and Private Peaceful, and he became Children's Laureate in 2003. He was a teacher before turning to writing and still loves reading fantasies and fairy tales in classrooms around the country. When he sits down to start each book, he says he's writing for the child inside himself. For any society, nothing matters more than the children, the seed corn of its future, he says. Life is not a race, not a competition. It's for living, for finding your own voice, your self-worth, your own place in society. Michael Morpurgo, thank you very much for joining us on Past Imperfect. Good to be here. When you're writing, do you still use a pen and an exercise book or do you now use a computer? Um, I use a, an exercise book and a pen f- when I'm writing things down for the first time. Um, but when I go through it now, I put it onto an iPad, um, which I find I can correct more easily. So I use both now. I'm getting quite modern, really. <laughs> And you write in a beautiful writing studio in Devon, which I visited, actually. Do you find it easier to write in the countryside? I find it easier to write where there's few distractions, that's for sure. But I'm not bothered where it is, um, as long as I've got a room which is peaceful um, and that I'm not bothered to answer the phone or answer messages and stuff like that. I hate those sort of interruptions. I impose them on myself sometimes when I get lazy. I'll go and look at the, to see if a message has come in. No, no, I shouldn't. It's a waste of time. Mm. Um, it's sort of like an excuse not to get on with the writing. I'm quite lazy, naturally, so I do find diversions. So the fewer diversions there are to be tempted into, the happier I am, really. And why do you write children's books and never for adults? Or do you feel that they're books that are for everybody, really? Well, I do feel they're mostly for me, really. Mm. That's who I write for. Um, but I suppose I suppose it's because of, of what I've done in my life in terms of teaching um, my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, um, children are the centre of my life, have been for, since I was a child, really. Um, I think they're really important. Um, and I find that they they somehow bring themselves into my story. I don't do these things intentionally. I write about what I care about, so I care about young people. I care about older people too, so you find a lot of older people in my stories. But very often there's a child central to the story, that's for sure. And I think it is because they really interest me. Um, I love with children the fact that they are spontaneous, that they look you in the eye when they're listening to you, when they're speaking to you, when they're writing. Um, I like that lack of pretension, really. Um, 
and I'm fascinated by how you remain young because that's really important. When you, I'm 79 now, and I don't spend my time thinking how am I going to be young today, but when I meet young people and I'm working with young people, reading to them, I, I tend to pick up, I think, their energy and their enthusiasm, and I feed on it, I think, um, rather hungrily, because it does keep you young. It keeps you alert and alive, and they're sharper than I am all the time, which, um, I mean, all my grandchildren are sharper than I am, um, mm. and I love that, but it, it means I'm, I have to keep up to the mark, otherwise they, they have you. <laughs> we want to take you back to your childhood. You were a war baby born in 1943. Mm. How do you think that affected you? Were you aware of the danger all around you when you were growing up? Not the first two or three years, no. 43 to 45, I suppose 46. I wouldn't, I don't remember anything. But I, I, I'm told what happened to me about being evacuated and that sort of thing. But I have no memories of that. The first memories I have are of being a, a child growing up post-war London. And um, growing up in southwest London, a place called Phil Beach Gardens, just off the Warwick Road. And um, so, yes, there were around me, there were bomb sites, and there were men sitting in the street, um, begging, I suppose, um, who frightened me. They frightened me um, sometimes because they were wounded. And there was one man I remember who had one leg, and he sat outside a, a shop, I think, with a little dog and a hat to put money and I was crossed over. <laughs> I was frightened of the dog, but I was also did not want to see his empty trouser leg. And I remember that very, very well. It's a sort of, that haunted me quite a lot. Mm. So there were these visions of a, what war does, the, the ruination to places and people and lives. And my own family was broken up by it. Um, I think the divorce rate went up four times just after the Second World War and my family was, was one of those. And so you, you, it was a fractured society. It was also a very depressed society, I think. And we now know it a little bit more from Ukraine, um, where we are realising just how it's affecting the mental health of people, their children and adults and old people, like everyone. And um, post-war people were grey and grim and sad, and everyone had lost someone or knew someone who had. It, there was a, it permeated that atmosphere. Mm. So I, but I wasn't really aware. I mean, I played war games. For goodness, I, I played war games in bomb sites. How strange is that? Mm. Um, but they were really good games because you were in ruins and we kind of knew that was what war did. It was sort of playing on a stage set, really, of, of war. Um, so, yeah, I was aware gradually, 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 but it took some years, I think. And after the war, your parents split up. Your father had been fighting, hadn't he? Um, what yes. happened to them? I mean, as you say, the, the divorce rate ran up. It was incredibly difficult, wasn't it, for any relationship? But Very how did hard. you view it? Did you ever really know your dad at all? Um, a strange relationship, really. To start with, no. He was away um, for the first few years of my life. Um, when he heard I was born, I know this now, he was in Baghdad. And uh, the war was, um, I think, he was, he was there stationed down right at the end of the war. And um, he, he tried to get compassionate leave because he'd heard from my mother, his wife, that um, she was planning on leaving him. And eventually he did get compassionate leave and he came home. I didn't know him then. It's a rather moving story, which I, 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 it's always sort of held me in my head about how uh, he was a very sweet man, my father, very good, kind. He was an actor and not suited to be a soldier at all. And um, anyway, the difficulty really was that he was still in love with my mother. He wanted the thing to go on, despite the fact that there was another man in her life. So he's, he said to her, well, 
look, give me one more chance. Can I take you back to the place we loved um, best, which was the Suffolk coast? Um, and we'll go on a bicycling holiday for a week, and then you can make up your mind after that. They really did this. They went off and they had a Southwold, it was, they went to. That's because they had acted, both of them, in rep in Southwold Pier. And so they went back to a place they'd been happy, cycled round, and she didn't change her mind. So he went off. <laughs> it was very sad. And um, I mean, again, I was completely unaware of all this. Um, and so he went away. And I didn't see him again until I was much, much older. So I grew up with a stepfather and two um, half siblings in a strange family, which um, was happy to the rest of the world. We knew, my brother Peter and myself, that there was a, an untold truth, call it a lie, whatever you like, mm. the, that was uh, the, the thread, really, that was trying to hold a, the family uh, together. And it had its, you know, we had our happy days, that's for sure. But as we grew older, my brother and myself, we realized that it was, to some extent, based on a falsehood. And did you did you ever think of changing your name back to Bridge? Did you what happened when you did meet your father? Uh, I met my father under extraordinary circumstances. I mean, really extraordinary circumstances. Christmas, uh, nineteen sixty, I think. Um, we were watching television, um, black and white television, an adaptation of uh, Dickens' Great Expectations. And I was sitting next to my mother. I never forgotten it. And all around this Christmas time were these relations who were. Um, all really my stepfather's family, sisters, all were there, and of course my stepfamily as well, so we're all sitting there. And suddenly my mother, <laughs> hand slapped down on my knee, because up from behind this gravestone reared the figure of Magwitch, the escaped convict. She said, oh my God, it's your father. Mm. I'd never seen him before, it was the first time I'd ever seen him. And he, he, was, a, he, was, a, he was a convict, you know, and. We just couldn't take our eyes off. Peter and myself sat there. Some of the some of the step family walked out because what had happened is right. this great secret had been broken open in a moment in front of a, a Dickens story on the television. Because yeah. my daddy was an actor, he'd gone to Canada, and it was just the Canadian broadcasting version of the Great Expectations we were watching. And um, I've seen the film, and I've seen him, and he's really good too. He's a really good convict. Mm. So I didn't get to know him until a few years after that because I hadn't, again, known because no one spoke about it because divorce wasn't spoken about for reasons we all know in those days. You didn't speak about it. You know, my mother, for goodness sake, she wasn't allowed to go and take communion in church and stuff like that. It was all this rigidity of the thing. So we ended up um, really being in the dark about my father for years and years and years, but we did learn eventually pressed up our mother to tell us more about him. Well, she did tell us that if we ever wanted to see him again, he had, um, he really wanted to see us, that he'd said that when he left. And I said, well, we do want to see him. <laughs> and uh, anyway, he came when we were about 21, 22, something like that, and uh, got on really well. It was kind of a strange, to meet someone who is your father and who you've known in your mind's eye for all your life, but there he was, and he wasn't a convict at all. He's very sweet gentle, kind um, man. And we got to know him a bit, and then he came back and forth every couple of years and um, got to know him, uh, my wife and my children. And interestingly enough, um, became a really good father because there was no baggage at all. The only baggage was an absence. Mm -hmm. 
which I knew perfectly well was not exactly his fault. He hadn't walked off because he wanted to walk off. He had said this thing, which I think is very noble. He said, um, when he was leaving, apparently, we learnt this later, um, that he didn't want to hang around and be a part-time dad. He didn't think that was right. It would get in the way of the new version of the family. He knew that. Um, and uh, he said, you know, I'll come back when people want me to come back and when they're sort of grown up and can say whether they do want to see me and then I'd love to see them. And so we did see him and I went to Canada a couple of times to see him. The last time I saw him, he was playing, he was in a play by Arthur Conan Doyle. I can't remember the name of it, but he, he was playing the central role of a uh, the last surviving soldier of the Battle of Waterloo. And he spent it all sitting in a chair because his feet were so bad uh, by this time that they kept giving him parts that he could play. <laughs> oh. This was at Niagara-on-the-Lake, in the theatre there at Niagara-on-the-Lake, at uh, Shaw Festival, it was called. Anyway, um, and I went there and I went to watch him. And here was this man who seriously couldn't remember where the sugar was in the cabinet when I was staying with him, but was word-perfect. <laughs> this old soldier. It was wonderful. There's a place in the brain, isn't there, with some actors mm -hmm. that they train and they train and they train. And he was completely convincing. And it was wonderful because he had a whole following in Canada, which I didn't know anything about at all. And he was really popular with both Canadian uh, theatre goers and with the, they used to come over the border in buses from America. So his theatre was packed with fans of my dad. And I was thinking, oh, Wow, you know, mm. and, they, and so I, <laughs> there was this lady who, I think, I think at half time or so, turned around and said, "Isn't it wonderful? Isn't he wonderful?" I said, "She's my dad." Oh. <laughs> it was a good man, but that's the only sort of close relationship to him we got. Really, it was spasmodic, mm. uh, and then he died. He was very well looked after by the company there. They were like a family to him, but he did die, I guess, alone away from his family, which is kind of sad. But. Um, Anyway, he made the best of it, and that's that's the, and so did my mother in the end. I mean, she married someone who, I think, was not an easy marriage for her, although she didn't like to say so. It was not an easy marriage. She had a, a problem with uh, drink and other things, which uh, blighted her life quite a lot, and indeed ended her life probably. So it was there's a lot of sadness around all that. But Peter and I are very close, and in fact, with my um, siblings, my step-siblings were, were, were very close now once in, in fact once the the story of the parents is sort of dealt with once it's out in the open it's fine you just mm. talk about it and it, it's fine was your relationship with your mother quite complicated though in a way that actually your relationship with your father wasn't in the end well do you know i don't it's very hard to say because so much then it's always oh, changed so much so much then was unchanged um we didn't touch much people didn't hug you know it was sissy to hug sort of thing and she grew up in that sort of world um she wasn't cold she didn't just didn't have that kind of relationship i'm not i don't know if we missed it or not we didn't know what the anything else was i suppose she was always kind um that's for sure very tired the one wonderful thing i do remember is that because she'd been a an actor in a young life went to rada and was really and she had a wonderful voice so she was the first person who ever read to us and so she would come and pretty religiously and sit on our bed peter and myself 
and read to us last thing at night. When she was very busy, she did everything in the house, everything, everything, everything to look after uh, the stepfather and looking after the other children. But she always spent a quarter of an hour sitting on our beds, reading us a story or telling us a story or reading poetry. And she read beautifully. She had an extraordinary voice. And she always made this, I think, very interesting rule. I learned it later, really, that, that she only read us things that she loved, which is so important. It's a good rule. So mm. you don't felt you were just being read to. Mm. She was joining in somehow the storytelling and she was confiding something. There was something about confiding what you love and she was doing that. And she had way, one particular story that was your favourite that you always had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was one, uh, it's called The Elephant's Child by Rudyard Kipling. And uh, she was very fond. I mean, it was that she was that generation of people who'd grown up with John Macefield and Kipling and things like that. I mean, she was pretty wonderful poets. Um, lots of rhythm and uh, fun. And so the elephant's child, I absolutely adored, and I made her read it again and again <laughs> and again. And she did all the voices, you know. Um, uh, you know, what's it called? The great green, greasy Limpopo River, all hung about with fever trees. Still don't know what a fever tree is. And it, actually, it's a thing. It's a tonic these days. Yes. You have it with gin, you know. But I, I think that she gave me that love of story. Um, which is a wonderful gift to uh, uh, to go a child. So she gave me life and she gave me a love of stories. That'll do. She was obviously quite depressed at times and yep. started to drink. How did you become aware of that? Did she seem very fragile to you emotionally as a yes, child? Yes, she was fragile. And you went to see her and you realised that she was declining, that's for sure. But I was aware, I think, from my late teenage years on that she was not a happy person. I think she'd had a history of, I think, depression when she was young. Um, she had a, what used to be called a breakdown, I think, when she was about 19. Um, I did know that later. She never talked about it. Um, she talked about how good her mother was looking after her when she was ill. She used the word ill. Again, not talked about. Mm. It was just, everything was not talked about. Mm. Um, and then, I think, later on, she just slept a lot and slept a lot. And and when you came, she always loved us coming to see her or coming down for Christmas. And that, But you could see it was a struggle um, to just, just to keep going and then look after my stepfather who was going blind. So she became his nurse uh, as well and she was very patient about that and, and good. I think it was just a very hard decline, really. Um, she died in her, in, in her 70s. Sadly, she died in America. Um, and away, and I, I don't, I don't like that idea at all. But it's very distressing um, when I think about it, because there was nothing I could do or any of us could do to comfort her at all, because she wouldn't talk about it. But again, it was, it was those times, this where everything was clenched somehow uh, into. If if it was something that you were ashamed of, you clenched it into a secret and you never let it out. So it ended sadly, mm. and she had a. Her family was very close. They were all Christian socialists um, and remarkable family in many, many ways. My grandfather was a poet called Emile Camarts. So literature was everything. Music was everything. The arts were everything. You know, Bernard Shaw came to the house. It was that sort of a house. It sort of all that really mattered to them. Um, and I think she felt she'd gone into acting and that people didn't really respect her as much as they would have done if she'd gone to university and done all that. There was all that going on as well. And she also lost, the reason the reason she was depressed is that she had one really good um, friend who was a, her brother, Peter, who was killed when he was 21 in the RAF uh, 
in the war, 1941, I think it was. Uh, I never knew him, but uh, I think she really missed him all, all her life because she was he was like a good companion, uh, and that wasn't there anymore. So she had um, how shall I say? She wasn't dealt a very good hand. Mm. And your stepfather sounds quite dictatorial. Just that the idea that you're not allowed to watch anything he doesn't want to watch on TV. What was he like? He was highly intelligent. Uh, he was an academic. He was a history editor at Penguin Books. He, he was um, one of these people, I think, he, he wanted and expected his children or stepchildren to uh, be high-achieving. And none of us were at school. Uh, none of us. <laughs> and uh, so he could, be quite, he could be quite intimidating then. But again, I... I don't complain. I think the man did his best. He also was probably suffering from stuff from the war as well. He'd been in the war for six years. Well, what the heck does that do to you? Do you know? You come back and... So I think a part of him was destroyed then. Um, it's difficult speaking about him, really, because I do, I do think he did his best. It's just that he could be quite cruel uh, verbally. Um, he was never very kind to my brother Peter. Uh, and I know why now, actually. It was because it's extraordinary when I look at how my brother behaves now. He has extraordinarily mannerisms of his father and my father. Uh, the so way he was The way he talks, the way he mm. moves his hands. And I'm quite sure that just irritated uh, my stepfather enormously. Um, so I think Peter had the rough end of it. And I, I think I was a pretty unpleasant young boy, really, because I found a way through this. Um, my way of dealing with it really was to please him. So I knew what he liked. He liked just to be successful at things. Really, this great thing was to. And I was really good. I wasn't good academically at all. Never could be. But um, I was really good at sport. So if I brought home cups and badges and stuff like that, which I did in vast quantities, <laughs> um, whatever it was, I could do sport. And you could see him swelling with pride with his. And I really liked that, uh, and I knew that was the way to his heart. And um, but, but that all sort of disappeared. I mean, I had a career which was, at school, very... Um, I, I was a good schoolboy, captain of school and sort of good sort. And then uh, he liked it when I went to Sandhurst, which was um, not the bit of my life I liked best, but he liked that. And um, then when I decided not to stay in the army, he was um, then... How shall I say? He didn't adapt very uh, easily to my having a, a will about what I wish to do with mm -hmm. my life. And so when I decided, strange night of my life, um, that I, it's only about after a year, um, that I didn't uh, want to stay in the army, it was um, an interesting moment, really. We were on exercise, 1960, Christmas time. It was really snowy. And we found ourselves on exercise outside Camberley somewhere. And it was snowing, I mean really snowing and unbelievably cold. We were in trenches. And I remember looking out over no man's land and remembering the story of the Christmas truce. And I had this moment, what am I what am I doing here? You know? I didn't really want to spend the most of my life uh, training to be a soldier. It wasn't for me. Um I thought, in any way, what did they do Christmas 1914? They all got up out of their trenches and they did walk forward and they did shake hands and they did exchange 
schnapps and and a beer, and they did play football, and the Germans did win 2-1, and what am I doing here, really? And I had a girlfriend by this time, um, and we had long conversations about what to do with your life, because I was still 19, fumbling around, not really knowing what to do, but I discovered what I didn't want to do by this time. Um, and with her encouragement, um, she said, well, if you don't like doing it, then let's not do it. We don't need to do it. You can do something else. I didn't know what to do, but at least you had made a decision. You know, and it wasn't a decision taken for me by circumstance. Um, I was good at being a soldier too, you know, I looked good. And I, <laughs> I mean, the uniform really suited me and I knew where I was going. I was going to be, you know, field marshal or, or dead. It didn't. And interestingly, I mean, this, I'm making this silly joke about it. I tell you what the reason was in my head and my heart. I grew up at a time, I think, when um, people in uniform had been the people who had saved our freedom post Second World War. And I think I was trying to test myself and, I suppose, my courage. Um, that was part of the reason I felt, you know, you must, they did this. There was no war to fight, but nonetheless, it was rather, it wasn't foolhardy. It was just a, an 18 or 19 year old trying to find a way of going with friends into the army and playing more rugby. Mm -hmm. <laughs> really what it was um but and, I, and your school sounds pretty tough as well you were sent away to boarding school at seven yes do you think you, that was too no, young I mean, were you I miserable think, I, I think you must i tell you what it is really it was too young good it was but i think what's really true this is what you all did middle class english boys all went away to school like everyone was at boarding school these prep schools were everywhere everywhere, everywhere. and uh they're pretty miserable places um but because you were doing it with lots of other boys somehow it was sort of okay you mm. know you you had to put up with the cold and the chill blains and the bullying masters and and being away from home so 14 weeks at a time you were away from your mum and your dad so homesickness was a big problem for me i used to spend my time before i being taken to victoria station and put on the train and there were literally thousands of all these kids going off on these steam trains you know Hogwarts Express, but real, off down into Sussex. And um, so many of them, like me, were either crying inside or they were crying openly. And so you'd sit in the carriage <laughs> and weep into the window, uh, watch the rain coming down, and know you wouldn't see Mum again for 14 weeks. It was sort of wretched. Um, and But, I have to say, after a, a week of weeping in your bed, um, you got used to it. It, it was, you didn't like it, but you got used to it. And then I buried myself, I think, in things I did like. So I liked singing in the choir, I liked music, and I already liked rugby. And, I've, and it, the, the trick of surviving in these schools was to find something you were good at so that you didn't get had at by the teachers. And I did that. I was a survivor, basically. Pretty horrible, I expect, but that's what I was, a survivor. So I, I, I liked my cricket, I liked my rugby, and sort of... I, you know got the cane from time to time but again everyone did it, it sounds awful but it, everyone did it was weird when I think back at it now in fact funny enough I was at dinner last night with an old school friend of mine we were just sort of bemoaning the fact that we had lived through all this stuff and, and they said yes but it was just what happened you just accepted it really um thank god the world's changed and often much of the best children's literature in your books, you don't actually see the parents. They're never there. It's always the story goes on without them. They've either died or they're absent or occasionally they're cruel. Or, but mm. but they're not normally integral to the story. 
do you feel that? Is that partly to do with boarding school for you at all or not? To some extent, I, I didn't have a father. I had a strange sort of two fathers, one and a half fathers or two half fathers. Uh, and my mother was very busy with other things and then I was away at school. So there was an absence at the heart of my life and our lives, I expect. I think we're all damaged by it, I expect. I don't know how much, but I'm sure I'm sure we have been, really. And I think a lot of people find it difficult to make relationships after that, I think. I mean, I got lucky. I got married to someone who kind of grasped all that very, very quickly. But it's that, again, is a good fortune, you know. It's, um, and do you think it made you a better writer because you were sort of, in your, you were losing yourself, escaping in your imagination? I don't know if it's that. I, I suppose what I do think is that I think you have to go to difficult places before you can write honestly about how the world is, really. I mean, it isn't a bundle of laughs. And we, whether it takes you six, seven years to find that out or 70, that, that is the truth of it. We are, we are living in a world which children have to come to terms with. And part of our job as teachers, writers, whatever, is to help them in that process. And it's more and more important now because they can see it. The difference then was that you, you really didn't know what was going on out there in the world. No one told you because you weren't to tell children things got it mm -hmm. might upset them. It's strange, really. You send your children away for 14 weeks, but you mustn't upset them with tales of what's going on mm -hmm. in the world. But you didn't know. You really didn't know. You played out. Um, you went to school. Uh, you, listened, you listened to Listen With Mother and stuff like that. But um, that was it. Now they have their phones, they have their iPlayers, they can see how the world is. They can look in on the bombing of Ukraine. Well, what that does to them, I have no idea. And the mm. trouble is, I don't think anyone else uh, has. Uh, but what is important is they get to know that there is great good in the world, great joy in the world, and also the opposite. And they're going to have to live with that, isn't it? You can't banish it. Mm. You're listening to Past Imperfect in association with the youth social mobility charity Speakers for Schools. With Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester, and our guest this week, the writer Michael Morpurgo. We'll be back after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
Welcome back to Past Imperfect in association with Speakers for Schools with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest, Michael Morpurgo. At 16, something rather extraordinary happened to you. You were selected from your school, King's School Canterbury, mm. as the cadet to go with the Queen yes. and Prince Philip to... Yes. Indian. Now, that must have been phenomenal because you've probably never been abroad before then, have you? France, Normandy. You know. Not quite that, the same as India. Not quite it? the same as India. No, and no. why were you chosen? And, and was I was it a good a chap. What are you talking about? <laughs> so uh, were you the best in the year? Of course, just the best in the country. I mean, <laughs> no, what it was, they wanted one cadet who was um, uh, in the army, one cadet at the air force, and uh, one from the navy. So three of us went in February, no January, nineteen sixty, and. Um, I mean, it was historic. I mean, it was ridiculous, really. We went for three and a half, four weeks during school term time, which was brilliant. Mm. Um, and we went off at the same time as their uh, visit to um, India to celebrate. Well, again, I didn't realise the significance of it, but it was to celebrate the, the freedom of India um, just a few years before. And we went to the Republic Day celebrations in New Delhi. But before that, for goodness sakes, we went to the president's palace and sat down and had breakfast with Pandit Nehru. <laughs> Think about it. It's wasted yes, on a 16-year-old. Yes, yes. had no idea how... And Mrs Gandhi was there. And uh, I don't know, it was just... It was quite, quite extraordinary. We met these amazing people. And I got to know people, Indian people, who I'd never really met before because we were kind of camping out in tents a lot of the time. But when we weren't camping out in tents, we were in bungalows. The three of us being looked after with a servant each. This was <laughs> this was really close post empire. Nothing mind boggling. It was mind boggling and it was really enjoyable <laughs> because everyone was very sweet to us and, and nice to us. Except I remember there were some officers and in, uh, Indian officers and the Indian army were our guests and they. I remember we were having a having a drink and it was dusk and you couldn't see and they put a nice bowl of nuts. We'd have some nuts with the order. So we took a handful, because you know when you're 16, you want a handful because you're hungry. Mm. Anyway, it was chilies. <gasps> and I think they really loved watching these two <laughs> idiots sprawling around on the ground. It was wonderful. No, it was amazing. And then we, we were there in the lineup meeting uh, the Queen, who, who obviously I'd never met before, doing this awful thing of being told what to do. There's a military man saying, now, when she comes, when she comes, you, you must remember, you must remember that you salute first, and if she offers her hand, that's when you shake her hand. So as she was coming along, I'm thinking, hang on, hang on, hang on. Did he say salute afterwards? Or <laughs> and all I can think about is what is going to happen if I get it wrong? I have no idea whether I got it wrong or all I know is I just couldn't wait for it to be gone and pass me. And when she did, the Duke of Edinburgh stopped to talk, thank goodness, for longer. But it was one of those moments where you don't forget it, actually, because it was, you know, she was already this young queen who, um, you know, everyone adored because she was young, she was beautiful, she was new and... And there she was. And then we were there in the parade when she came back in a, along in a great carriage. But when I think about it historically, it was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Here you were, the Queen of England, enjoying a Republic Day parade in India, which had been the jewel of the crown and was no more. It was, it was a good moment. In many, many ways, it was a great moment, you know. But the significance of it was lost on me until I um, met her later on. And I did actually ask her later on, do you, do you remember <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she said she did. <laughs> but I did actually say I was there, Republic Day, um, 1960, and uh, what were you doing there? So I said <laughs> I, was a, I was a cadet and I met you there. Did you? And it was, uh, she was very kind to me. But um, 
it, it, it was it was good to be able to over a lifetime have a sort of strangely distant connection with it. But I, I know I was invited again simply because of Warhols. That's all it was. Right, and she loved that, didn't she? She adored Warhols. Yes, I wasn't there the night she came to see it in the theatre, um, but she turned up apparently, crept in um, with two friends, I think, uh, aides or ladies in waiting, whatever they call. And after it was apparently after the lights went down, they just crept in and they sat down. Um, I knew nothing about it at all. Uh, and the next day in the paper, every paper, the Queen goes to Warhols with her saying it was very good or something like that. So I think the ticket sales went straight to the <laughs> yeah. better net interview from the Times or anything else, that's for sure. That's she had um, she'd seen it. And what I didn't realise at the time is she was passionate about um, the production and particularly about Joey. So I have to tell you that at some point just after that, she summoned Joey to Windsor Castle, which is the only time a horse puppet has had an audience <laughs> with the Queen. And, and the a, corgis. Well, it was outside, actually. It was out, I saw a photograph of it. No corgis around at all. It was, well, in case the corgis got kicked, I expect. Anyway, uh, it was outside the castle walls at uh, Windsor, and uh, there she is, patting Joey's head. Um, and do you remember, I don't know if you remember, she had a, I can't remember which jubilee it was now, it was a, the one which where it rained all the time, and um, she was down, going Golden down... Golden jubilee, I think, wasn't it? Yes, they were going mm. down the river in yes. boats. Do you remember? pouring with rain. Pouring rain. And the National Theatre put on this wonderful thing of... Joey galloping along the top of the National Theatre and there's a marvellous moment where it was the then Duchess of Cornwall touching her on the arm and getting away and there she was pointing up there and you see her face sort of broke into her skull. she really loved that horse there's no doubt about the talk hence I was invited to the palace and then got to sit next to the Queen it was lovely so what did she say we no. talked about she was interesting really she said how much she'd enjoyed the um, the play and we talked about the First World War which she had very strong connections, I think. And you often write about not pets actually, just but but animals because there's lions and of course there's the warhorse and cats. And mm. why do you do that? Is it because you never had pets as a child, or because you love animals? Did or? I have a pet? Excuse me, I had a goldfish. Okay. I had a goldfish. <laughs> not cuddly, is not very many goldfish uh, in goldfish. your books. I had a goldfish, which I won at the village fete. Is there a goldfish in any of your books? Um, nope. No. <laughs> okay. No goldfish tours I called the goldfish Swinsey. I remember that. And I remember finding it dead and burying it in the garden. <laughs> I remember all that. No, we did have a dog. And there is a story behind the dog. Um, we had a dog. I was very fond. I think it was a sort of a half retriever. Kind of mad. Ran off all the time. So much so that my stepfather decided we should no longer have a dog. So when I came home from school one holiday, there was no dog anymore. And I remember being really, really upset about that. I don't think it's that, though. It's later on, really. Um, when we decided to set up farms for city children and move down to, to Devon, it was largely because my wife Claire's very fond of horses, very fond of animals, and always had been. And she was passing it on to me a bit. And we did have dogs and cats when the children were younger, like a lot of people do. Um, I wasn't that fond of them, but then I went to live on a farm, and um, the more I worked with them, the the more relaxed I was about it all. But then I saw this enormous benefit which animals uh, can give uh, to children. And I suspect vice versa as well. I saw the connection between uh, children, this business of trust and uh, a relationship which seemed to be mutual. And it wasn't sentimental as far as I could see. It seemed to me to be real. There was a comfort going on here between and, and a trust and a love between 
um, the children and the horses or the donkeys or the sheep or whatever it was, there was a connection. And I was very persuaded by that. And I, I think that's one of the reasons why animals have crept into the books as often as they have. I'm not particularly an animal lover. I am persuaded that uh, we are one of a species and we live amongst them. And it's really important we understand their needs. Um, and we have much to offer them if we treat them right, and they have much to offer us if we treat we treat them right and go on treating them right. So I suppose that it's an education thing as well. I just think it's how we can introduce them to this world out there, um, which is ever more complex in terms of looking after it, and not to feel special and apart that we rely on each other. And that's all very important. So I suppose it's that rather than I like cuddling them, you know mm. what I mean. But you're also dealing with quite dark, difficult themes sometimes, whether it's war, death, destruction in your books. Does it make... Are you partly using the animals as a way of kind of dealing with that horror? That yeah, it's I, easier... Yes, it's, it's to introduce it, I suppose. Uh, um, certainly, I mean, take War Horse as a really, really good example, really. It's a, I've written books about the First World War, which is simply about the soldiers and the families left home and all the mm -hmm. rest of it, private, peaceful and others. But... Um, I have always felt that with with children, they have to be held by the hand as you're taking them into difficulty. Um, you can't just cast them out there and let them swim. And um, so the horse, Joey, there, and this relationship that uh, Joey has with Albert, uh, the farmer's boy back in Devon, is essential, really, to the whole story because that's the reason he goes to the war, is to look for his horse, which his daddy sold away to the army without telling him, so he goes off and looks for this horse, and it's the story, really, of what happens to this horse. But there's a point in it as well, and it's linked to what the story is really about. Yes, it's about a relationship between a boy and a horse, but mostly important, it's, it's about the universal suffering of war. Well, how do you tell, talk to children about that? Well, I thought if um, a horse is sold away to the British Army, which... Joey was in the story and happened on our village green in Iddesley and on many village greens and towns up and down the country. They needed literally a million horses to go. If that horse is sold away and becomes a cavalry horse, British therefore, living with British soldiers, and if that horse is then captured and living with the German army, and if that horse is then wintered on a French farm, you are going to see the war from all sides and understand what it does to everyone. And that's what I really wanted to do with War Horse. And in a sense, I used the horse um, to illustrate that, mm. I suppose. Um, do you feel that you really need children to read these kind of stories, that there's nothing really that they can't read, that you don't want to protect them too much, that it's important that they know? I think we, protect, I think we protect children if we're not careful. Uh, to such a way that we, again, pass on the world that's wrapped up in a pink ribbon. Um, they, they're going to have to know, you've got to be careful. It's absolutely not to traumatise them. So you, you have to tell the story in such a way uh, that they can feel it, feel it hard, but that it, it is not at all damaging. I hope I've been successful in that. I don't know. Other people will judge that. But I... 
I think the worst thing we can do with children, the worst thing, you know, is to patronise them. Is to, I mean, they're super intelligent people very often. They just happen to be small. Mm. Their experience mm. of life uh, is not as long as mine, lucky them. Uh, they're just small. They haven't been around for very long. But if you talk to them in a way where you respect their emotional intelligence and intellect, then you talk to the real person. You do, and they love it when you look them in the eye and you tell them. It, it. I think it's that you're. They know they're being trusted with it, and I think that's really, really important. So much of you is a teacher. I mean, it's extraordinary. You just want to impart your knowledge and your advice. And, and do you think if you'd stayed in the army, it would have been the same? How did How did you know that you wanted to be a teacher? Do you think you had a passion? No, it grew age. on me, really. I didn't know what... Uh, I'd love to say I had a mission for it. I didn't. It's in my family. I have a lot of teachers in my family, that's for true. And I have a lot of writers in my family, so I could say that's partly that. I don't think it's that. I think what it was, was that I um, I was fumbling around. I left the army, I'd been to university, and I was still fumbling around. I didn't really know what to do with all this stuff. Um, I knew I had to earn a living, really. And um, so I thought, well, I'll take a postgraduate... Um, certificate in education, that's what I did, and ended up standing in front of children. Well, what do you do? There was this awful moment. What <laughs> do you do with 35 children? How do you hold their attention? And I was in primary school, so I was extraordinarily bad, I knew, at everything, unless I loved doing it. And what I really loved doing was telling them stories. And I had this amazing head teacher was called Mrs. Skiffington. I've never forgotten. It was a wonderful name. If you had been Dickens, you'd, you'd have made Mrs. Skiffington. You know, it's a wonderful name. Anyway, dear Mrs. Skiffington at Wickenbrew Primary School came into the staff room one day, tiny staff room, about three and a half teachers, and she said, I've had a, I've had a, I've had a, I've had a thought in my bath last night. Um, she wanted to be eccentric woman. She said, um, here's what I've decided. I've decided that from three to half past every day, we are all too tired to teach the children. They are too tired to learn. So I want every single teacher in this school now to read a story from three to half past every afternoon. Well, I hope the Minister of Education is listening because that's exactly what should happen. We should all do what Mrs Skiffington says. And I did that, and all the teachers did that. And I ran out of um, things to uh, read and... Uh, one day Claire said, well, make up stories of your own. You know, you're quite a good liar. Go and, go and um, tell a story. Tell a story. <laughs> you can do it. You can do it. And it gave me the courage, I think, to, to stand up there the next day at three o'clock and just launch into the story, which I'd made up during the night. And uh, to my amazement, I found they listened. And then when I got into the telling of it, they listened more. At the silence. And there's something wonderful about the silence of listening people, adults or children. It's just an extraordinary moment in which is frozen for half an hour. And then the school, the school bell went and all the class went, oh, sir, <laughs> I hadn't finished. And I thought, yeah, I can do this, I can do this. So it was a, a discovery that I re that was the teaching I loved. I did other stuff as well. But that, I mean, I love producing plays. I love taking them out, watching birds and sanctuaries and stuff like that. So there's, I loved immediately exploring the, that, that part of education which schools weren't generally dealing with, and I still like doing that. And do you worry now that it's all got into grammar, punctuation, it's all about the rules and the imagination side of it has gone? I think the problem is it's prescribed. 
Um, I was talking to some teachers the other day saying how much they were losing teachers in schools, and partly it's the money, but also it's partly because it's so repetitious. You mm. just have to come in there and you teach to the test, you teach to the exam, and the most successful teachers who do that job best um, are fine. That's one way of looking at education. It's actually, for me, quite a narrow way of, um, of teaching. As far as I'm concerned, it's the child that, that counts in all this. That child has got to leave school at whatever age she or he leaves, whole, full of potential, of confidence that she or he can go, can go on. You have to have inspired them to do that. So you have to have teachers who can inspire. That's what, actually, they are there for. One of your inspirations was Ted Hughes, and there is a sense, actually, that we all need to learn more poetry, but was he particular to you? Did you meet him, and how, how I more than met him. He was a neighbour. He was a really good friend. Um, and um, we, we kind of... Um, he and his uh, wife, Carol, and Claire and myself became best of friends. And he became um, a patron of our charity farms for city children because he grew up when he was young, close to the, uh, the moors in Yorkshire, and he knew that his early connection to the natural world around him was the most important thing in his writing or to him as a person. And he thought this was central to a child's life, to have this connection. And it was the right of every child to um, have this access to the countryside and the natural world. Um, so, yeah, we, we, he would, we would have dinner together often. He would amazingly bring me manuscripts and say, what do you think? Well, he would leave them. He wouldn't say, what do you think, actually? He'd just leave them with me. Yes. And then I thought, well, I'll do the same to you. You said that's not quite good enough. I never said a word. Do you know the awful thing was that... You, I mean, he, the man was immense in all sorts of ways. He was... I think if you were frightened of him, he was formidable. Uh, he had an immense presence. He was one of these people who, in, in a room, filled it. And his voice filled it, too. He, had a, I used to, he used to go up to read to the kids who came to the farm. And what was really wonderful was watching him being nervous. The only time I ever saw him nervous was when he had to sit down in front of 30 kids in front of a fire and read his poems. And his hand was trembling. I think, for goodness sake, the great Ted Hughes, you can yeah. go to Hayes Festival and <laughs> talk to a thousand people and without a twitch. And, and it, but it really mattered to him that the children um, connected with the, with, with the poems he was reading. He was, he was wonderful. He had this amazing reading voice. Only he and Seamus Heaney, I think, had this extraordinary way of reading, which no one else can sort of get near, I think, really. So, no, he was a great inspiration. He became really much of a mentor. He told me at one point, I remember I, I was getting tied up with Warhorse and halfway through it, and I, I thought I got writer's block or something stupid because there is no such thing. Anyway, um, I was saying to him one evening that um, I got stuck. And he said, what do you mean, stuck? Um, I said, well, I, I'm just not getting on with it. And he said, well, you shouldn't have started it then, should you? <laughs> so he was, could be quite fierce. Because, and I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you don't start a poem or, or you don't start a story until you've soaked yourself in it. You know, you soak yourself in the people, in the place. And it's only when you've done that, when you've lived through uh, the story, not knowing where it's going to go, but you must live it in your head and live the people Research, do the research, do it all, but don't sit down and look at a blank sheet of paper and start until you've done that. And then you can write your Once Upon a Time. And then once you've done it, he said this, whatever you do, when grish your teeth, he said it, don't give up on a story. He said you finish it to the end and you put a full stop because if you give up on it, then the next story you write will be even harder to begin. And do you think you're a very different father from your stepfather and from your own father? 
and I hope I'm different from my stepfather. I don't think I was a good father. I was too young, I think, probably. I always give that as my excuse, but I was young. It was ridiculous. You were 19, um, weren't you? When I you don't were... want to talk about that. <laughs> um, I was extraordinarily young, that's for sure. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. And, and Anyway, it's not my fault. Um, but <laughs> they, had something to do with it. <laughs> well, I suppose. I don't know. I certainly was not mature enough to be a good father to very young children. I got better, I think, as they got older. And I am much better as a grandfather. I am a stunningly good grandfather. <laughs> and as a great-grandfather, I'm just the best. <laughs> How I've many learned. have you got, grandchildren and great-grandchildren? I've got eight grandchildren, and we have now two great-grandchildren. Now, I'm joking apart, and I mustn't joke about it. I do think I was too young, uh, and that didn't do my children any good. Uh, but luckily I had a wife who I think was wonderfully compensating in that respect. She was much more tears than I was. Uh, Claire was much, much better that way. But I think um, in my older years I've become uh, more reflective and less inclined, I suppose, to have expectations. And what I know now is that you, with your children, you have to have unconditional love, period. Mm. That's it. Do you think it's harder growing up now than it was after the war when you were growing up? Much harder. They're having to make impossible decisions all the time. Yeah. Most of my decisions were made for me. And also I had a very free life. I mean, I talked about Phil Beach Gardens earlier on, the place where I lived in West London. Um, there was a place where we could play in the street. We played football on the street, cars didn't come by. Uh, and you didn't have choices. You played out or you came in and you read a book or played drafts or something like that. That was sort of how it was. And there were rules about bedtime. And and every child was the same, really. We were all treated roughly the same until sort of 7 o'clock bedtime or or whatever. And, and, so, and because the rules were, generally speaking, the same for everyone, there was a general acceptance that was all right. It, it wasn't... I do think that, well, that did help children to know where they were. They felt more grounded. However, the imposition of rules... Um, sometimes it's quite harsh. There's no doubt about that at all. Um, and, you know, you went through punishments at my primary school in St. Matthias, in Warwick Road, um, where I spent quite a lot of time in the corner for doing ridiculous things, you know, like looking out of the window. And I'd been back to the school. One thing I discovered about these old Victorian schools, have you ever noticed that the windows are always put really high up in the walls just so that you can't look out? And I loved looking up at the sky, and I was never very interested in what was going on in the classrooms anyway. So I got in lots of trouble. And your wife, Claire, says that you've got six selves. You've got the boy of ten writing for the child inside himself, the soldier, the teacher, the entrepreneur, the performer and the campaigner. Which is the Who most important? Your wife, I think. You My don't read everything said, she writes. My wife said that. <laughs> yes, I think we've got it. I'll talk to her. <laughs> which uh, do you think? Is it probably the child, isn't it? And I think she's probably right. I don't like to say that, but I think she's probably right. The child is very uppermost, that's for sure. And as I get older, I'm, I feel freer uh, to speak my mind, to be who I am, which is what children like to be, I think, really. Campaigner, more and more. I feel more and more strongly about the world about me, particularly about how we treat society and children. That That is definitely there. The bits in between, I'm not sure, but I shall talk to her about that this evening. I have no idea and thinking back to yourself at the age of seven, being sent off to boarding school, what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? 
I suppose I wished I had understood why I was being sent away. Um, and we none of us understood that at all, really. Most of you were being sent away because everyone else was being sent away. It was sort of what you did. Um, and I would love to have had someone to say to, well, actually, it's for your studies. We want you to study hard. We want you to go to university and stuff like that. So it made some sense for it. We didn't really know what we were doing going away. It was a mystery, really. Um, and it was all really, you'll have fun. You'll, you'll, you'll love it. You'll love it. Well, we did love some bits of it, but the bits, this is the other thing. Mm. The bits we didn't love, we didn't even tell our parents about. It was all creeping Secrets on this thing. Lies, yeah, because otherwise, mm. you know, you'll be called this and called that and all the rest of it. So, I mean, I can't remember how many times I got caned, but I don't think I ever told my parents about that. Um, but did people didn't like you complaining. It's another world, it really is. I mean, the world has improved massively, I have to say, in all sorts of ways. And in that sense, the business of being able to say how you feel is um, one of the great freedoms, I think, now that we have, um, which was not available to children then at all. And do you think you'd have been such an empathetic writer if you hadn't had the sort of childhood you had? It's hard to know, isn't it? It is hard to know. I I suppose I might not have been a writer at all, you know, so I'm spending my time, if I'm honest, trying to explain the world to me um, and trying to, to work out what I... And I can do that best in stories. I'm much better, I think, if I tell a story to express myself rather than to um, say it face-to-face, -face, even over Times Radio. Michael Morpurgo, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. listening to Past Imperfect in association with the youth social mobility charity Speakers for Schools with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, the writer Michael Morpurgo. The producer was Lucy Ditchmont. If you enjoyed this episode of Past Imperfect, please do go to the Times Radio app where you can download our interviews with guests including Keir Starmer, Maggie O'Farrell, Lem Sisse and Tom Daly. You can also buy a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.